0: The big critique of CrossFit is the fact that you're pushing somebody to their extreme. They're beyond their work capacity and then they're just chasing the reps or ch- just trying to lift the weight up. And, and that's when you need the sensible coaching coming in. So they're either scaling the workout or they're decreasing the weight on the bar or the, the height of the box jump. And that's probably not going on as much as it should do. And obviously working with the Russian weightlifters, you could see that the first rep was as good as the last rep. And that's, that's probably where ne- CrossFit needs to go. It needs to be a bit stricter I- in what it's doing. But again, is, we've got this Bobaath approach versus the, the functional relearning, motor relearning. Do we just do we make sure we're perfect uh, and immaculate before we even attend the technique? Or do we just do the technique and tidy it up as we go? And I think the truth will lie somewhere in the middle there.
1: Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is British physiotherapist and ex-Royal Marines commando, Dale Walker. Dale is the co-founder of Bulletproof Bodies, an extreme sports physiotherapy service in the UK that specializes in injury prevention and management for extreme sports, such as CrossFit and military athletes. He has served in the British military for 22 years, both regular and reserve, as a Royal Marines Commando and British Army Physiotherapy Officer. He is also a lecturer in physiotherapy at the University of Salford. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a free gift from Dale.
2: All right, well, Dale Walker, welcome to Living 4D. We were just talking about when we first met in 2001, which seems like a long time ago now.
0: Yeah, uh, a long while ago.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's exciting to have you on the podcast. Gavin brought you to my attention, and of course, right away, I recognized some common uh, backgrounds together. So why don't you uh, start by giving us a little bit of background on yourself and, and uh, how you got interested in my work and, and where that led you today?
0: Um, yeah, well, obviously, I've been studying your work for a long while. But uh, yeah, so I'm the co-founder of uh, uh, an extreme sports physiotherapy company called Bulletproof Bodies uh, with my business partner, Uzo Ekiog. Um, I'm a lecturer in physiotherapy at the University of Salford here in the UK. I'm speaking to you live from Media City in Salford. Um, I've got a 23-year military service career. I started uh, uh, in the Royal Engineers, where I was an assistant Army physical training instructor, then transferred to the Royal Marines, uh, did my commando training, and then ended up as a British Army officer uh, in physiotherapy. Uh, Did some operational tours. Uh, now I'm serving as a reservist. I left regular service about four years ago. And my special interests are CrossFit and tactical athletes. Uh, but Very really, good. really, Paul, I'm, I'm a perpetual student uh, and I'm now a teacher. Uh, and I've got a deep drive to, to nurture and serve people. Uh, and that stems from the fact that my brother was born disabled. Uh, oh, he had wow. a disease called neurofibromatosis. Uh, and that came with lots of challenges, but really, I, I was his carer. Um, I, we looked after him for a long period of time that 's where the, the kind of the need to to help people out came from. Uh, I also grew up in the home of the British Army, and I come from a line of soldiers, my father my my grandfather, my great grandfather uh, so what better way to serve than to serve your country, uh, but not you know not as a as a warrior but as a physiotherapist or, or for one of a better word, a healer uh, these days. Um, I've swapped soldiers for students uh, and I specialize in teaching exercise prescription for undergraduate physiotherapists. And that's where, um, when I was redesigning how physios were taught exercise, I used the Czechs principles uh, and approached Gavin about whether we could uh, have permission to uh, get a couple of your books that I've got here, Movement That Matters, Um, obviously uh, the, the main book, The Bible. (laughs) <laughs> which is uh, how to eat move and be healthy which is is probably the most influential book uh, in my practice and uh, that's where I'm today Paul
2: that's that's quite amazing and I'm very grateful that you uh, are sharing my work with physiotherapists because god knows they need it i mean physiotherapy general uh, in general worldwide is in pretty rough shape and traveling the world and teaching physios and physical therapists, as we call them in the States, I found that the uh, Danish physios and the Canadian physios were just like in a, a, a league of their own and right up there with the uh, New Zealand and Australian physios for a more of a comprehensive depth of knowledge. But the, uh, I hate to say it, but the American and the English physios are about tied for some of the worst I ever saw in my practices. So hearing that you're upgrading their software is very, very pleasing to me.
0: Well, I was lucky because I went to uh, a medical school to do physio and most of my teachers were Antipodean. So we had two Australians, um, one lady from South Africa and one lady from New Zealand. So uh, I've been taught all by these, uh, these various countries. And I think the profession of physiotherapy is a high standard in many different countries. I'm I'm sure the UK and the US have their issues, but I'm I'm a big fan of actually uh, lots of uh, physios in the US and in the UK uh, and further afield. But the main thing is in this kind of new era of exercise prescription and whether physios were were up to date with that, that that was what I was brought in for. Uh, and I've got a, a vast experience in exercise prescription, uh, taking from many systems, uh, but the Czech system is is my go-do. And hopefully the new generation of physios, we teach roughly 100 physios per year. So already that's 300 students that know the Czech system um, at undergraduate level so far.
2: That's exciting. You know, the... Some of the differences I saw is that American and the English physios I came across were much more what I call gadget-oriented and far less uh, comprehensive in actual uh, structural assessment and related factors such as diet and lifestyle. And the Danish physios are the only physiotherapists in the world I've come across that are actually trained in and use uh, intra-pelvic therapies and proper treatment of the pelvic floor I was trained in pelvic floor therapy and intrapelvic treatment through my neuromuscular therapy training, which I completed in 1989 through the St. John Institute in St. Petersburg, Florida, and had many physicians referring me patients for intrapelvic work by prescription, which I was allowed to do legally because if they send them to me and prescribe it, then I'm basically protected under their medical license. So Naturally, Mm -hmm. they're not going to refer to somebody that they don't trust, but I have a lot of experience and came across countless people in my travels around the world with serious pelvic floor problems that had been to all sorts of physical therapists, nobody of which would uh, ever go inside or they, they had all sorts of phobias. And when I used to do it in the physical therapy clinic, I worked at for four years, sports and orthopedic physical therapy in San Diego, which is the largest physical therapy clinic at the time in San Diego with its own surgical center and 13 orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons working in the same facility with us. And uh, when I would do uh, pelvic floor therapy, the other therapists would look at me like I was strange and I'd say, well, why the hell aren't you guys doing it? This is a major component of rehabilitation. And if you don't treat these pelvic floor muscles properly, the chances of them recovering from any number of connected injuries and and motor dysfunctions is almost zero. And the most common comment I got is I would never stick my finger up somebody's ass. And I'm like, that is just so childish. It's just mind boggling to me that a professional therapist has an attitude like that. But that was the most common response I got. and, And that's after many inquisitions. So Having studied with Australian physiotherapists and even teaching, I did a a presentation for the New Zealand Physiotherapy School in Auckland and picked up some good techniques from one of their instructors there that I implemented into my system for uh, neck stabilization training using the blood pressure cuff. So it's been quite a journey uh, traveling around the world and and having many physios in my program. I, I can see right you know, where their development is at, what's important to them, what's not important. So um, all that is just another way to say I'm really grateful that you're sharing the things that you're sharing because I feel without those basic concepts that I teach in the resources you mentioned, then the body just becomes a machine and it's certainly not a machine as I'm sure you're well aware of. So maybe you can share a little bit about what are the kinds of concepts that you are implementing from the Czech system and how the physios are are handling it or uh, accepting it or how they're responding to it?
0: Yes, certainly. So um, for me, it's the the functional movement side of stuff that's so important. Your primal patterns are a great way of – what you did is you gave us a framework of which to hang loads of stuff on Um, I feel that the fitness industry and the health industry can be confusing, lots of conflicting information. Whereas if you've got a framework of which to develop some clinical reasoning from, um, then you're a lot better prepared to say, okay, I can add this to my practice, or I can take away this, but I've still got that underlying theory. Uh, And the key is the functional movement side of stuff. Uh, so I worked in bodybuilding for two years as, as a physiotherapist for bodybuilding, where I saw a lot of people that looked great, but didn't function very well. Uh, and coming from this kind of military and Royal Marines background, uh, I always preferred functional movement, being able to do stuff, uh, rather than just sort of looking good and, and flexing that, that wasn't what I was about. Uh, and yeah. I remember going through, uh, Commando training, uh, and it was the guys that looked good, but couldn't climb the rope, or they they couldn't run fast, or they couldn't carry the kit, or they needed loads of protein powders. You know, they just weren't functional. Um, so the functional movement side is is massively important. Uh, in in physio, we've we've got these two concepts of you know, should we be moving perfectly before we go on to the next level, or? should we just get on with the movement and then we tidy it up as we go but the most important thing really is just to keep people moving functionally uh, and get people away from the bicep curl and into the squat and the deadlift Uh, because that's where that's where the evidence is in compound movements in strengthening the system of systems rather than strengthening things in isolation not saying that we We want to isolate. uh, We want to, you know, focus on compound movements only. Sometimes we need to isolate to integrate, Uh, and we use this the the system that you have with regard to um, breaking down, chunking movements. In your book, movement that matters—that's the one we've got at the university. Chunking those movements down. So when we're doing a single arm cable push, there's three elements there. There's there's the push itself. There's the rotation, and there's the weight transfer. And it's mm-hmm. that carryover to functional movement that is lacking in in, in gyms worldwide. Uh, and you were well ahead of the curve uh, on that. And you know they're the principles I've been teaching from the beginning. They're the principles I teach now. Uh, and that's the that's the framework with which we uh, which we build um, functional movement. And and as you say, you, you, we try and put the fun into functional movement. So it's not just boring exercises. We're we're challenging the system. Uh, balance, proprioception, perturbation, speed, agility, adding the various components of fitness, but staying with function because it's working that system of systems. We're not just working something in isolation.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, years ago, you know, I started lecturing professionally on these topics and traveling around uh, first the United States, then the world in 1988 is when I began my professional lecturing uh, tour, mostly at that time, to large physical therapy clinics and uh, various things. Like I was also a, a presenter, a guest lecturer at Los Angeles Chiropractic School. But uh, I found research by Carl Bobath, who is, him and his wife founded the Bobath Method of Neurological Rehabilitation, which is taught in American physical therapy schools. And Bobath said, Uh, He made a very profound comment in one of his research papers. He said, the central nervous system knows nothing of muscles, only of movements. And that was one of the key things that I used to point out to the bodybuilding and strength conditioning community that was still very, very addicted to fixed axis machines and Smith machines and all that kind of stuff to point out that When you start focusing on isolation of a muscle, especially when you're using higher intensity training, which increases the amount of charge through the nervous system and therefore how quickly the system reprograms itself, you're actually training the body to do something it cannot do in any functional movement. And the more athletes train that way, the more disintegrated their functional movement patterns begin because they put so much emphasis on building neural pathways to isolate specific muscles in functional absence of the muscles that have to be integrated, be it core muscles, the tonic system relative to the phasic system, or how the legs have to integrate with the core to support loads in the arms. And so exactly as you said, you get... Athletes that are very, very strong and fit looking, but just like you, when I was in the military, I used to be amazed at how all these guys with all this muscle were just functionally useless as soldiers, and oftentimes they would come to me because um, I set the uh, record for the obstacle course and confidence course at two military posts. And so a lot of these guys would just be mind boggled how badly I could torture them in these various contests. And they would ask me, how is it that you can do what you do? And at that time I was only weighing 166 or 168 pounds. And I would explain exactly that to them. I said, you've taught your body to work in ways that are not functional. So you you're strong as hell on a lat pulldown machine, but you can't climb that rope. So it's it's been a interesting journey. Initially I got a lot of resistance from people with masters degrees and PhDs and you know various degrees in rehab professions but I had to point out to them I am drawing my uh, scientific papers from your own literature. So it's not at all like I'm coming out of the you know left field with strange uh, weirdness published in obscure journals. I'm taking it right from places like the Journal of Physical Therapy, the Journal of Exercise and Sports Science, and related mm-hmm. journals. So it was quite a interesting um, process. But eventually, as I'm sure you're aware, the concepts that I pioneered got to be so mainstream that today, very few people even know what I pioneered.
0: Yeah, I, that's a that's a big point. Uh, and that kind of brings us nicely onto uh, where Gavin and I are working at the moment. So the British Army is changing the way that it's training. Um, so loads of, tra- loads of things going on with the British Army at the moment. It's changing more in the last two years than it has the last 200. So um, we've got women going into the infantry, we've got you know new kit, and we've got a new training philosophy. And that's a, a functional movement training philosophy. And if you look at the uh, the it's called thor which is a uh, training human optimization for readiness and it's a lot better than than it used to be uh, which was you know loads of long runs um loads of circuits uh, and and they're not the tasks weren't specific for the functions that they needed to do so if you listen to this push pull squat rotate lunge brace squat and hinge does that sound like primal patterns to you
2: sounds fairly close
0: yeah, and their response was that it comes from uh, Method Natrel, uh, George Herbert, um, and the French Navy, uh, and the story about uh, when the volcano was erupting and and people couldn't jump, swim, climb uh, for their own health, and the beginnings of parkour, and and the concepts of you know being strong to be useful rather than you know gaining all this fitness for competition.
1: I hope you're enjoying this episode with Dale Walker a true master of functional exercise and all the tools and techniques that, when used properly, can really enhance athletic performance. One of those is the versatile kettlebell. It's one of Paul's favorite pieces of equipment because used properly, the kettlebell is much more realistic to the types of activities that everyone has to do every day, from CrossFit athletes, the military, and regular people going about their normal lives. But kettlebells are also one of those pieces of exercise equipment that few people know how to use really effectively, which is why we're so excited to announce a special offer to our Living 4D with Paul Cech listeners. The Kettlebell Mastery online course was created by kettlebell master Mike Salemi, and there are few people on this planet who know the kettlebell quite like Mike. Not only does he understand the fundamentals of kettlebell training, Mike also gets how to effectively incorporate kettlebell training into a truly holistic program. That's why Paul recommends Mike's program to people who want to learn to work effectively with the kettlebell. He knows how to fit that training in perfectly with your own lifestyle. And now through the end of June, all our listeners can enroll in Mike's Kettlebell Mastery online course at a 20% discount. So if you've been wanting to learn how to use the kettlebell or to use it more effectively, we can't recommend a course more highly than Mastering the Kettlebell. Head on over to checkinstitute.com forward slash mastering dash the dash kettlebell. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash mastering the dash kettlebell. And when you check out, enter check. 20 to claim your 20% discount, as well as a secret Paul Check mini course on working in. And now back to Paul and Dale.
2: Yeah, it's uh, when I was a soldier, it was the same stuff, it was a lot of you know, things like uh, running through various obstacle courses uh piles and piles of push-ups and i actually set the uh record for the 82nd airborne division for the most push-ups in two minutes go on then how
0: many did, how many did you do uh
2: my record is 144 in two minutes wow my that's impressive prior to that i think i had tied the record which was 127 but then i ended up taking care of that challenge and uh and then, you know, of course, tons of sit-ups and, and just sort of like, you know, run run people and exercise people into a state of complete loss of motor control and then push them even harder yeah. until they're vomiting and, you know, passing out everywhere. And, and you know, I was watching more soldiers be destroyed than be developed. And, and fortunately, uh, there was the general of the 82nd Airborne Division, um, actually was following me in the newspaper because I used to be in the military newspaper on Fort Bragg for winning boxing matches. I also represented the army in triathlon. So I was winning all sorts of, you know, events, be it running or obstacle courses or triathlons. And so the general of the 82nd started consulting me for help and a variety of uh, high level officers. And that started having an effect on the way they perceived what they were doing to soldiers.
0: Interesting. How, how did they change or did they change?
2: Well, I think the, the thing that happened is they realized because they were asking me to help them train for various events. Um, and I think what, what I pointed out to them most was that they were seriously over training and both of these guys were in their sixties. So I was just really explaining to them two key factors that we're missing. One is if you don't pay attention to your body and you keep pushing it, then you just break your body and uh, you know there's uh you know the very strong no pain no gain attitude, but I would tell them no brain no gain. If you don't pay attention to what's happening, you're not gaining anything. You're just playing a stupid game. And then I was also talking to them about the importance of eating high-quality food for preventing unnecessary inflammation and optimizing their metabolism. And so uh, what what they shared with me is that they were uh, seriously working on uh, passing that awareness down through the chain. But, you know, there's 90,000 soldiers at the 82nd Airborne Division, and I was extremely busy. So I just know from conversations with them that they were uh, – considering how they would take their own learning experiences and make those strategies available to other soldiers?
0: Well, the, the, if there's a population group that needs the four doctors, it is the military population group. So, for example, they, they don't generally sleep enough and they're always surrounded by people. So, you know, Dr. Quiet is out of the window. Yeah. Uh, then they've got limited control over what they eat and their diet because, you know, they're fed at certain times the, uh, the military's got to f- feed numbers rather than you know give them uh, you know high quality organic food. In fact, the only time they're going to eat organic is when they're on a survival
2: exercise. Uh, <laughs> That's probably a good idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I've certainly never tasted food better than when I was uh, when I had to you know kill it and cook it myself. Um, also, there's that tendency to overtrain, and, and people tend to kick the ass out of you know doing a particular exercise, or you become a specialist at pull ups or dips or right. Um, bench press as well. And you're not a good all rounder. And in the military, as you just said, you know, you've got to do triathlon, you've got to do running, you've got to do assault courses, you've got to climb ropes, you've got to, you've got to be a sport billy, you've got to be an all rounder. And then, of course, you know, if we're looking at Dr. Happy in the military, you know, people aren't, you know, soldiers aren't happy unless they're, unless they're complaining about something. <laughs> um, and that's generally, generally how it
2: is. Well, if you study Matthew Kahn's work, Uh, which is very good. He's a spiritual teacher. And uh, he says that um, complaining is our first impulse toward creativity. And people that complain are usually unaware that what they're complaining about is their opportunity to make a contribution to improve things. But as you know, the rank system in the military doesn't make it very easy to step up and say, "Hey, this is lousy. We need to improve this." They'll just tell you to shut the fuck up.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not a democracy. And uh, you know, while we would listen to soldiers, there's a very strong hierarchy. And uh, you know, there's a there's a complaints form. Go and fill it out. Right. That's the uh, the way of managing things. Uh, and change takes a long while, but. Certainly we've seen changes in the U S military, yes. uh, with regard to functional movement training, which is really good. I've seen some fabulous stuff there. I was in the States, we were in Wisconsin doing a global medical exercise 2015. Uh, and that was really interesting to see the, like the different training concepts that we had. Um, and you know, there were people doing a mix of different things. Um, you know, calisthenics is very popular in the U S. So, uh, that you guys have got lots of bars and dip bars and put, you know, pull ups and ropes and all that sort of stuff. So I felt right at home. Um, we don't, we, we didn't have that before. We're generally getting better at that. Most of the gyms now have a frame. We've gone to that functional way of training because it it is the future. It's how we should be training. Obviously we don't want to throw everything out. You know, bodybuilding still has a place, endurance, training still has a place. But really, we've seen the benefits of combining that training. And that's where things like CrossFit have become so popular.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, If you study the history of physical therapy or physiotherapy, it actually didn't begin until the polio era. Uh, What we now call nurses and physios, I mean, what we now call physios used to be nurses that were assisting doctors with Uh, the challenges of polio and neuron death and the physio, the nurses were then tasked by the doctors to start doing isolation exercise. So if someone's say C5 uh, motor root uh, nerves were being eaten up by the polio, uh, then they would have to do isolation exercises for the biceps to try to keep putting neurological energy through the pathway and try to maintain some strength in those muscles. So interestingly, what I did is I researched what was happening in, in medicine and physical therapy throughout history, and I found that at the same time the physios were developing isolation exercises, the bodybuilders were not using isolation training. This is like in the uh, around the end of the Second World War, the bodybuilders were almost all Olympic weightlifters that would show up to bodybuilding contests and pose, and almost all the guys winning bodybuilding contests were high-level Olympic weightlifters. And then paradoxically, and this is quite a wild coincidence, as physiotherapists begin to realize that no amount of isolation exercise as done for polio patients, which then was used with other people, would improve static or dynamic posture or a person's functional capacity with things like box lifting tests or various functional movement tasks like picking up something from under a counter and putting it on top of a counter. And so then came Bobath and various other integration therapies while simultaneously physical therapy was returning back to an integration model. The exercise world was now implementing machine training from which was pioneered by Vic Tanney and people like Arthur M Young and and the people that built the universal machines and you saw for example with Bill Pearl his book Keys to the Inner Universe which was which is like a thousand page bible of high quality functional bodybuilding training with dumbbells and cables and and the kind of basics that would still be somewhat functional Then his second book came out, and all that was gone. It was almost all machine-based training. And instead of writing the book himself, he had experts from various universities writing a volleyball conditioning program, a football conditioning program. And unfortunately, he was actually at a conference that I was lecturing at, and my lecture title was A Neurodevelopmental Approach to uh, Athletic Conditioning. And not even realizing he was there, I I showed pictures of his books and showed how this correlation that I'm talking about with the transition of uh, the, the bodybuilders, which were Olympic lifters and functional lifters, had now become isolationists. And so I said, here's two books that literally document that transition in the way we think about athletic conditioning. And then I highlighted how what was really a bodybuilding approach became the mainstay Of athletic conditioning. And that's when uh, athletes begin to have all sorts of disintegration type injuries and uh, much more low back problems and shoulders and various joint problems because their systems were breaking down. And there were the paradox is the stronger you make your arms and legs without integrating the core, the more susceptible you are to injury because you no longer have the principle of force attenuation at work. So you get all this isolation, for example. I'm sure you've seen a million people do a single arm cable push, but they don't use their legs at all. They just hang everything off their shoulder. And so when you yeah. start doing flies and dips and uh, bench press and you're not adequately uh, – you don't have enough range of motion in the shoulder, but you start getting anterior caps laxities, and the list just goes on and on as I show in scientific back training and scientific core conditioning. So it's a very interesting – uh, observation to see how the physical therapy world and the exercise worlds were on opposite spectrums in the beginning. And then right when the physical therapist realized isolation training was not functionally effective and switched to a neuro integration approach, the exercise community went the opposite direction. And I actually showed pictures of the University of, of Pennsylvania's physical therapy training department gym which looks just like something out of Eugene Sandoz's book, Life is Movement, with rows and rows of dumbbells and cable machi- systems all along the walls and all sorts of you know medicine balls and club bells and functional training equipment. And that was the university's physiotherapy training gym. And then I showed a picture of the same gym in 1989, which was nothing but medics or um, Nautilus machines.
0: Yeah. Um, I always tell my students that physiotherapy comes from two areas. Uh, One is the sort of London School of Massage, who formerly were probably prostitutes. And the other is um, the remedial gymnasts of the military, um, who used gymnastic movements, integrated movements, like you said, in order to restore function, mainly after the Second World War. So physio in the UK certainly comes from uh, a fusion of prostitution and the military. Uh, no, uh, uh, no puns intended in uh, in that correlation.
2: Yeah, there there is some connection. I've studied the history of massage therapy, and and I went to a very comprehensive, world class sports massage therapy school right when I got out of the army. That's why I moved to San Diego because they had what I thought to be the best massage therapy school in the United States, which was developed by a Russian massage therapist, and in Russia. Massage therapist uh, takes them seven years to do their training and they're equally respected as medical doctors. And in the history of massage therapy, there's a tremendous amount of excellent material on things like how to treat organs through reflex pathways and all sorts of very deep stuff that uh, most people don't realize is there. So my point is that there's actually a real legitimate depth to massage therapy, but because it was so negatively associated with prostitution, people often don't realize that massage therapy has deep roots in the medical system as well as in allied approaches to uh, rehabilitation. And uh, people that were normally called witches were actually using a lot of interesting manual therapy approaches and the very stuff today that we call energy medicine.
0: Mm, interesting.
2: Yeah, for example, balancing chakra systems with crystals would would have got you burned at the stake, but they might've been pressing acupressure points and other things like that that they were finding through intuitive or uh, basically being sensitive enough. I I personally can just put my hands on someone's body and feel where the uh, flow of the energy moving from their energy field into their body shifts and just put my finger right on the acupuncture points. And I've tested this by- finding points and then checking maps and finding points and checking maps. And for years, I used what's called a point finder, which is a little device that scans the body for changes in electrical resistance. So I learned...
0: Yep, got one and I use it. Yeah. yeah definitely
2: good. So I learned how to feel by just paying attention to where that light, the where the, where the, the point finder would buzz, a little red light comes on and it'll buzz. And then I would run my hand along the meridian. And sure enough, I could feel a significant shift in the flow of energy right there. So these things can be learned.
0: Yeah. And and do you find after you've been a manual therapist for a while that you, you begin to work intuitively with your client so you can feel the tightness? You can feel the restrictions. You can feel the quality of the tissue. And your body, their body knows what it needs to be done. Your hands know what to do. And you just work with them intuitively. You don't have, obviously, you should do the assessments as well. But when you're working with a soft tissue, with the fascia, uh, with all those systems as well, after you've been a therapist for a long while, uh, you just intuitively know what to do. Do you find that?
2: Absolutely. You, You Really, one of the techniques I teach my students and especially in the higher levels of training is a technique, a, sh- a shamanic technique called emptying the bone, which means before you work with someone, you need to go through a process of letting go of all your emotions, all your hangups, all your fears about, you know, can I pay the bills or whatever's clogging your, your mind up so that you can actually become an open vessel of connection and communication with the patient. And then what happens is your energy field combines itself with theirs, and the two of you become like one organism, except as the therapist, you're reading the information and holding the intention to help or to heal or to harmonize or to balance. And then it's as though you're being guided invisibly. And, you know, for example, when I do Tai Chi and I just let go and ask my body to guide me, it'll my body will guide me through a very, sometimes a very comprehensive unwinding process where the fascia might be restricted from the lifts I've been doing. And my body will move into the exact positions to release the fascia. And then I'll feel the chi begin to flow through those areas much more effectively. And I can feel trapped emotions leaving my body. And by the time I've done 20 or 30 minutes of that, it's like I've had a 90 minute massage and seen a chiropractor or an osteopath And my body and my mind are very, very harmonized again. So I think the key principle is realizing that our energy fields do overlap. And then what happens is the creation of what is often referred to as the third, which is the marriage of your psyche and your information with that person's information to create a combined field of intelligence that then becomes the guiding force in the therapeutic relationship.
0: Yeah, and that's a great way of putting it. And I think one of the things about physical therapy or, or physiotherapy is it's only physical. And if we're dealing with mental, emotional, and spiritual needs, then um, we're only ever going to be 25% successful uh, because that's all we can be. Because, you know, it only makes up a quarter of that person, really, the physical body. Um, so I've just finished um, your HLC1 course with Warren Williams, which was an excellent course. Great. Uh, and that, you know, just opened my eyes to uh, lots of different things. Actually, it was a it was a great course. But um, the working in concept, as opposed to working out, I really enjoyed that. And working with the different zones, uh, particularly using things like breathing squats. Yes. So rather than how many squats can you do as fast as you can, really just appreciating the movement, balancing the system. And, you know, how low can you keep your heart rate whilst you're doing these squats? Yes. As opposed to how many can you do?
1: This month is Movement Month at the Czech Institute, and we're celebrating by offering all our listeners a special discount on one of Paul's most important online courses, scientific back training. If you're a serious strength and conditioning specialist, rehabilitation specialist or personal trainer, then this course will help you to train your clients more intelligently and effectively. This in-depth course with over 18 hours of online video will teach you about the functional anatomy of the torso and the biomechanical intricacies of trunk stabilization. You'll learn how to use a control systems approach as part of a holistic program for back pain, as well as how to identify joint restrictions that can affect squat technique. The course covers techniques for selecting stretches and exercises for preventing and alleviating back pain, as well as program design considerations, such as proper exercise technique, exercise selection, and exercise modifications. If you've a serious desire to develop the best possible conditioning programs for yourself and your clients, Scientific Back Training will be an invaluable learning resource. So get your copy online now at checkinstitute.com forward slash s b t that's checkinstitute.com forward slash s b t enter l4d back when you check out to receive your 15 percent discount and now let's get back to paul and dale walker
0: um when you're using your zone exercises what do you what exercise do you use for the best buy-in
2: well the best exercise in the world is the one a person's willing to do every day
0: yeah agreed but in your vast experience you know the breathing squat is a great place for me to start because some of these concepts can you know there's a little bit of resistance to um, getting into some of some of the concepts that you teach you know even just visualization and relaxation techniques there's resistance to particularly in these in these extreme, conditioning programs and and the military so how do you how do you uh try and melt some of that resistance to to your concepts
2: well with athletes what i tell them is hey uh what have you learned happens to you if you don't warm up properly before any kind of training session with high intensities or high density of volume such as a circuit workout and i've never had an athlete yet that didn't right away pipe up and say well you're a lot more likely to get hurt that's what i've learned And I say, well, congratulations. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you a way to warm up that not only warms you up, but integrates what are called biological oscillators. And so I explained to them, the brain has a very strong electromagnetic field and a massive influence on the integration of all body systems. The heart has a magnetic field about 5,000 times stronger than the brain, and research shows that the heart actually informs the brain, but we deconditioned ourselves to listening to our heart-centered feelings, especially soldiers. I mean, how do you kill another human being without blocking your heart feelings? And then the solar plexus is a very, very large network of neurons, and research shows that the solar plexus has as many neurons as your brainstem and spinal cord combined And what heart mass research showed is that if those three ganglia, brain, heart, and solar plexus are not integrated, then the body goes into a state of disharmony or chaos. And when they show feedback using biorhythms, biorhythm assessment, electroencephalogram, electrocardiogram, and various other monitoring technologies, you can see that whenever a person goes into a parasympathetic state and integrates the right and left brain hemispheres through rhythmic breathing and rhythmic movement, that those biological oscillators come online, and then we're in a state of open receptiveness. All systems are integrated. You have integration of the visceral, glandular, uh, neurological, psychological, and motor systems. So that it's, it's like, I'm sure you've seen, uh, if you go into a clock shop, all the pendulum clocks will be swinging in tune, but if you go knock one of those pendulums or two of them so that they're out of tune and come back a couple of days later, they'll all be swinging back in tune again. And what physics says is it's the mass of the pendulum of that's the largest that has an electromagnetic influence on all the other pendulums swinging and ultimately pulls it into harmony. And you see the exact same principle biologically whenever you get a bunch of women on a sports team or working in close proximity or in an office where the strongest woman in the group will actually have the influence that causes all the other menstrual cycles so that they harmonize. And the next thing you know, they're all in premenstrual phase at the same time. They're all menstruating at roughly the same time, which means all of us know when to be very careful around the business or office. But so what, what I'm showing the athletes is that because of these internal systems your digestion assimilation metabolism and elimination are the foundation of any athletic conditioning because if you can't digest metabolize assimilate and eliminate then you don't have any anabolic capacity so your your training becomes perpetual catabolism and destruction until the point you're chronically inflamed and injured so i show them that to enhance the warm-up process that if you focus on relaxing your mind and doing almost any of the exercises that you would do as a warm up, you can take a deadlift bar and just leave the bar empty. And as long as you can adjust the speed and the depth of movement so that you're timing the movement cycle with your breath, and your heart rate isn't going up, and your breathing rate's not going up, and your tongue's not drying out. And I tell them the best way to learn to do this is to do this right after you eat a meal. Because if you don't do it properly, then it makes it uncomfortable. And you feel like your digestion's being irritated, or or you feel all this weight of this food in your stomach, like, ugh, I'm training with a full stomach. And once the athletes have that feedback from the food in their stomach, they learn, oh my, if I really do this like he taught it me, taught it to me, I start having a clear mind. My body starts to feel relaxed. And then when I actually go and start pushing the warm up in stages up to training weight, I find that I can lift much more efficiently and much more effectively and that I relax much more deeply and my rest periods are more uh, restful. And for many of them with various types of challenges, I have them do work in exercises on their rest periods to reharmonize the system, particularly if someone's going through a challenging event, like a divorce or a death in the family, or they got you know, demoted or uh, someone put them in another, another uh, job that they don't like doing. And so they're frustrated about that and they find that it helps them um, handle not only higher intensities of training and higher durations and volumes of training, but it helps them um, deal with stress more effectively. And so really what I'm teaching them is, is, is a form of active meditation And because most of these people have a very hard time sitting still, I find that usually within about six months to a year of using work and exercises, they actually begin craving to be in that place of stillness. And they start actually naturally gravitating toward periods of just sitting. And I introduce them to meditating by doing things like sitting on a Swiss ball or a weight bench between sets and just allowing themselves to focus on their breathing and breathing through their uh, belly and doing a proper diaphragmatic breath. And I tell them, think of your brain just like a muscle after a hard set of squats. You're not going to go sit on the bench and flex your muscles. You'd never recover. So if you think of your brain as a muscle that works when you're thinking, then when you are on a rest period, if you just allow your brain to relax and visualize that you're relaxing it like you relax a muscle you can fall into these deep states where your mind actually paradoxically moves less, but you gain tons of intuition and insight that you didn't even know was knocking at the door. So, uh, you know, an athlete that really did a great job of applying this is Mike Salemi, who's now got something like three or four Russian kettlebell masters and won a a Russian master, a Russian uh, kettlebell uh, world championship uh, using these techniques and now teaches them to his athletes all over the world.
0: Yeah, I, that's some great ideas there for, for loads of therapists out there. I we can generally get things like yoga uh, if we repackage it in the military, we had to repackage it as power stretching. And then people came along, we called it yoga, nobody turned up. We called it power stretching, everybody turned up. Um, and then we, rather than call it Pilates, we call it, you know, core training. Um, or midline stabilization training as as the, the the new buzzwords now um, but the the kind of the work in things um, these are really interesting and I think rather than like a, either a walking meditation or maybe just a, a repeated movement meditation with a barbell with a dumbbell that's a great way of of getting people into that kind of empty mind state mind in neutral uh, where they're just running running through and it, it's like when you're having a great run uh, and your mind's in neutral and you can just keep going and you might experience something like the runner's high in uh, in times like that. Um, there was about six months ago, um, I was running. We were doing a mountain race. Uh, we, we, my friend was walking his dog at the same time, so the dog was running with us. Um, there's lots of people doing the race, and I just got this massive runner's high. Uh, and my mind was just in neutral, and before I knew it, the race was over, and it was a, a an amazing experience So If we can get the athletes doing things like that, if we can get the tactical athletes getting into that meditative phase, then that 's going to be massively successful in terms of managing their emotions and i don 't know you know how you felt when you came out of the military is that you know all of a sudden you don 't have these restrictions uh, and you 're not in an environment that that is you know an alpha male environment. You know how did you manage your emotions and your mindset when you left the military initially?
2: Well, two things I'll tell you. What what we're describing here is going into what's now referred to as a flow state, and very many people that I've taught these techniques to find that they are much more likely to enter a flow state and learn how to do it much more easily. Um, and the other thing is, if you study the history of martial arts and the greats martial arts masters, they all teach high-level martial artists to stay in what they refer to as a right brain parasympathetic dominant state because the right brain hemisphere is the hemisphere of connection to the whole. So for soldiers, that's extremely important. I've listened to many interviews with soldiers that were in combat in Vietnam and other places and shared that the only reason that they're alive today Is because they learn to relax and feel. Instead of thinking, they learn to feel. And they commonly stated something inside them let them know when trouble was near. And they would either back their team down or pause and wait and listen or send a scout ahead. And that's the reason they're alive today. And the great martial arts teachers tell you: if you allow yourself to drop into a fight or flight state because you are feeling angry or you're triggered then now you're stuck in the left brain hemisphere which is the hemisphere of doing what you've always done which means you've knocked creativity and novelty completely out of the equation which makes you highly predictable as a fighter and so really when you look at the research and you look at the histories of soldiers that have survived environments that Like I've seen interviews with people that said their whole platoon got wiped out, but something told them that they needed to go to a certain location or instead of being where everybody else was, they had to find a certain rock or certain place to be. And they were the only one there. And at the end of it, everybody was dead except them. And some, uh, you know, they often describe it as a little voice inside of me told me where I needed to go. And so this is what happens when we have that connection to the environment or to the wholeness of what's happening. And so it's it's so funny that you know the the kind of ass kickers avoid the very very methods that could be uh, life saving for them and also give them access to much more wisdom uh, on the fly. But it takes someone who's brave enough to go outside of conventional dogma. To be wise enough to test things for themselves. And when they do, they usually never turn back. And yeah. so, you, your next question I'm sorry, I wanted to put that in there because it was so important. How did I react emotionally? Well, one, I was very, very focused. Um, my work as trainer of the Army boxing team and the ability to work directly with the team physician who was an osteopath and taught me a lot about caring for acute sports injuries. And the feedback that I got from the coaches and the athletes inspired me so much and gave me such a sense of meaning and connection that I realized what my life path was through that process. And and it showed me how all the challenges and all the martial arts and boxing and motocross racing and, and kind of intense sports and, and very rough and dangerous uh violent physical uh, beatings and things that I got as a child from my stepfather, who was a very dangerous man to be around, much more dangerous than any soldier I ever met. Um, In fact, one time a drill sergeant pulled me aside and was getting in my face and yelling and spitting all over me and saying to me, you know, you have that look on your face like you're not afraid of me, you think you're a tough guy. And he had pulled me into a barracks while everybody else was outside and I looked him right in the eyes and I said, Sergeant Baumgardner? I was raised by a grizzly bear and you would not handle one fucking day on the farm with my old man. And there's nothing you or any of these dickheads around here can do to scare me. And anytime you want to close <laughs> the doors and put me to the test, I will show you what I'm made of. And after that, he stopped irritating me. Wow. But my point being is I, um, I was so focused and I had so much love moving through me. And I had reached a point as a fighter that I realized that every time I won a battle and had to hurt somebody, that something in my heart started to die. And I realized, probably from my training with the monks and my years of meditation and my mother being such a spiritual woman, that my life mission was to help people and that I could no longer focus my efforts on learning to hurt people or disable them or destroy them because it was it was killing me in, at the level of my soul. Something died inside of me every time. And so uh, that, coupled with my own investigations into what the military really was and how it really was being used as a tool for rich people and corporations just to steal resources – made me so damn happy to get the hell out of there that uh, I really felt like, a, a, like I'd been let out of prison. And so now that I could focus completely on what I felt was my life path, which was mixing my knowledge of nutrition and, and weight training and corrective exercise and postural conditioning with sports massage therapy to create an integrated holistic approach, uh i was just so f- fulfilled and i was getting so much positive feedback from all the people that were injured and athletes that had problems that i was able to help that i i really had no integration challenge whatsoever i think the 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 place where uh, sadly where most of my stress came out was in my relationship with my first wife and my son and i have tremendous empathy for the wives and children's of soldiers because i lived as a paratrooper and in these environments, and I saw how much physical and emotional abuse there is in military families because men come home after being kind of tortured all day by higher level ranks and, and criticism and constant competition for achievement of rank or whatever it might be that I I would say that was where I uh, probably needed professional support the most was because I remember Like yesterday, it was exactly three years after I got out of the military. One day, my wife looked at me and she said, you're finally back to normal. And I said, what do you mean? She said, having lived through the military with you, you're now back to the person that I married, the person that I fell in love with. She said, you became somebody else when you joined the military, and that person was very, very hard to live with.
0: Wow. I thank you for sharing your story there. I, from, I, not from my experience, I, I had a fairly easy transition, but a lot of people I know leaving the military, whether they've been injured in conflict or they've had a permanent injury or, or, that, or maybe a mental health issue, from just living in the military, um, you know there is the consequence to leaving the military, and, and, and that needs to be supported. So a couple of years ago, I organized a big military veterans conference uh, with the aim to, to support veterans and for them to feel listened to. Uh, and there's an emerging community uh, in the UK. We, we don't have the VA like you do in the States, um, but there's emerging communities, uh, charities like Help for Heroes that are, that are helping people get back on their feet uh, and just really address to, to Civvy Street. But the the flip side of that is that the military gives people a lot of gifts. It gives them discipline. It gives them self-respect. It pushes them beyond their own expectations. You get this fantastic group mentality. Uh, You make amazing friends that you have for your life. Uh, And the social side of things, if things are going well, um, it, it can be one of the best places. And certainly within my experience, um, I've had some of the best times within the military that I wouldn't have got had I just been a civilian. What, what, are your, what are your highlights, Paul, from the military? What are your top three highlights?
2: Well, I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for the military. Um, I was smart enough that when I joined the military, <clears throat> I had a plan A and a plan B. When I went to the recruiter and did all my testing, they said to me, your scores are high enough that you could be trained as a Cobra helicopter pilot or a helicopter pilot if you just went and get an associates of arts degree because you can't enter the officer ranks without at least an AA degree. But I have a, a – I have a have and had a real resistance for the, the kind of academic classroom environment for many different reasons, but uh-huh. I said to them, I'm not interested in going to school, but – what is the job with the highest potential earnings when I get out of the military and the most technical training that I can take? And so they said, well, if you you qualify to bec- become an aircraft weapons systems, fire control repairman, which means that if the co-pilot of a hel- Cobra helicopter gets injured in battle, you have to take over the weapons platform and you're the expert at fixing it, which required uh, 44 weeks of electronics training and and uh, two months of math training for those that didn't have uh, good enough skills because in training, you have to do all the calculation of electrical circuits longhand, no calculators. If you lose your calculator in a battlefield, you have to know how to figure out how to repair the weapon systems by hand. Sure. And so I got... A lot of great training, and I like you said, I met a lot of people. I didn't need the discipline at all because my father was much tougher than the military at any level that I've ever seen, and much more brutal. Um, but I did watch a lot of young men that were very undisciplined and very out of control, guys from street gangs and and families where they were they'd never really uh, become an adult learn how to stand up for themselves and how to be responsible and all the things that you mentioned. So I've, I've actually said to people in the past, we could change the United States radically and many countries if we made it at least uh, mandatory for uh, all people that turn 18 to do at least two years of military duty so they can learn how to be a warrior And I think we have such a large population of children that just don't have any sense of responsibility, that never let go of the hind tit, that always want mommy and daddy or social security or government to rescue them from their silliness, that I feel that mandatory military training would really be a good transition from what I call the child archetype into the warrior archetype, where you have to learn to think on your feet and learn to stand up for something that you really believe in, which might be your own nation. And then you learn to face danger and face the risk of death and giving your life in service to something bigger than yourself. So I really feel that aside from the political horseshit that uh, the military gets involved in, that it is a very real training ground, but at the same time, I've worked with many PTSD soldiers that admitted they got into the military thinking it was just going to be a good paycheck and a a regular uh, uh, meal of food on the plate and a a kind of a safe haven, but went into quite a state of shock when they ended up in a live battlefield and realized that they didn't think their decision out very clearly. So I think it's a place where you really do learn responsibility, but you also have an opportunity to figure out what your true values are. And so I always encourage people look into what the military really is, not what it's promoted to be. And then know that you can gain a hell of a lot of life skills, life experiences, and things that'll support you in the rest of your life, but know that it comes at the cost of you now becoming a weapon in an arsenal of which you have no control because once you join, you're now a number and you're a piece of military equipment in fact you know i don't know how you guys run it in the british military but when i was in the military if an if a soldier went off post and did something like getting really drunk and damaged their body they could actually be put in jail for uh basically damaging military equipment they're they're uh tasked with maintaining their responsibilities as a soldier and if they're found to be doing things that lead to their own destruction, they literally can be put in jail for the equivalent of destroying military equipment.
0: Um, I don't think we've got anything that would stick like that in the military. But obviously, um, you know, if you're turning up drunk on duty, that you're going to be punished pretty severely for that. But I know what you're saying. Um, and this leads us on to a nice segue about the fact that, you know, skeletal injuries are, are through the roof. I'm sure for the U.S. Army, uh, Navy and Air Force and the Marines are just like the British military. Um, so it's important that soldiers, and soldiers are generally young people. They're going to do what young people want to do. They're going to smoke, drink, hopefully not, but some of them might take recreational drugs and, and they're just going to be young people. Yeah. Um, and the great thing about... Uh, the military is it teaches you that social responsibility uh, and it stops you maybe joining the gang uh, that you might've been because you're searching for that family connection. If, if you're not from, you know, a strong family background um, and you can be surrounded by comrades. Um, So there, you know, there's lots of, uh, of positive things uh, in the military. So, you know, when I, when I left the military, I was, I was still searching for that buzz um, that I got when I was in training, and, and I've been searching high and low for it, and and the only place I found it was CrossFit. Um yeah. And I know uh, you've got some interesting views on CrossFit. You want to get into that right now? or
2: Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, before we jump into the whole CrossFit issue, I will share with you that uh, over the years, uh, especially around 2005, Uh, maybe even a little earlier, Um, the Navy SEALs sent two of their physical conditioning trainers into the Czech program, uh, both of which I think at the time went to Czech level two. um, And one of them came in because he was getting out of the Navy SEALs. Uh, His name's Donnie Raymond, and and he... um, I think he might have gone to check level three and he um made it to a very, very high level. Um I'm trying to remember the uh uh what's uh you know the basketball prayer um I'm brain farting right now, LeBron James. He LeBron he, James, yeah. Yeah, he became LeBron Bre- Le- 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 <laughs> brain farting. My my must be rented lips, they won't perform for me. Uh <laughs> He, uh, he became, uh, LeBron James's, uh, conditioning coach for a number of years. And he, uh, recently shared with me that he just got so exhausted from all the travel. He went off and did his own thing and, uh, opened his own clinic in Miami. But two of the guys before that, one of them's name was Steve Nave, and they were in the Czech program specifically got to go back to the Buds, uh, program where yep. they, Uh, indoctrinate Navy SEALs and uh, revamp the program because they were losing too many athletes, uh, too many uh, soldiers to injuries. So they took a lot of things like the primal pattern training and um, isolation integration and a lot of the things you're talking about and did a lot of uh, revamping of the Navy SEALs conditioning. And I've also had uh, Greg Muller uh, and one other master sergeant was sent by the New Zealand military into the Czech program back uh, probably, uh, probably uh, 97, 98, 99 era. And uh, their job was to go back and rehabilitate the New Zealand military's uh, conditioning program because they were also having too many injuries and Um, Greg Muller ultimately went all the way to check level four and then became the most successful strength and conditioning coach ever in rugby. And I've actually got an interview with him this week. He was the first person in the history of rugby to be the strength and conditioning coach for the professional teams in each of the three leagues that all won their championships in the same year. Wow. So I've got, I've got a picture of him, a level four check professional, in a rugby pitch with the championship trophies of all three rugby league, uh, rugby professional leagues. And he was the strength coach for the all blacks, the Auckland blues. And I can't remember the other one, but, and I've consulted uh, with him for the all blacks, the Auckland blues. And and I've consulted with a lot of professional rugby teams, Yeah. but there, so there's been a fair bit of interest from militaries. I've also been consulted by a, uh, well, a secret organization that trains, uh, Special for higher black ops soldiers, um, and they were interested in my approach and what I would do differently. and And that was a number of years ago. And that uh, you know, I obviously can't say any names or anything like that. But sure, it, it's the Czech Institute's message has made it deep enough into various organizations that it has resulted in high level military interest. Um, when it, with CrossFit. Actually, one of one of my high level students, Ross Ethorne, is very involved in CrossFit in um, I can't remember what country he's in. Um, oh, if I th- if I think of it, I'll tell you. It's uh, I'll, I'll remember if I can. But uh, it's a, I think it's an Asian country. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, CrossFit for me when I looked at what was going on with CrossFit the first thing I noticed every time I went to a CrossFit gym is there was, you know, 95% of the people in there were not even close to being physically ready for the kind of exercises they were doing. The second <laughs> thing I noticed is that, you know, having uh, having relationships with so many osteopaths, chiropractors, and physical therapists, not only that are in the Czech program, but that have consulted with me all over the world that clinics were, were getting a lot of business due to CrossFit. It was like most orthopedic surgeons and physiotherapists and people of that nature immediately began to be aware that there was a lot of injuries being created by CrossFit. And I thought it was interesting when the CrossFit organization was attacking somebody for publishing research, saying that there was a X number of injuries per capita or whatever. And I'm like, well, they're just insecure about the actual truth because I could easily demonstrate that that's a fact. Now, having seen all that, I know Ross Ethorn, who is a level three check practitioner, and HLC practitioner, did a lot of work uh, in his region to help modify CrossFit so that they were better at identifying who was ready for what type of lift and chunking the lifts down so that the instructors could see, okay, that person does not have the ability to extend their thoracic spine, so any overhead pressing has to be uh, cut out for that person. So they might just do the clean instead of the clean and jerk, for example. Yep. And uh, there's been um, there's been various people doing that. Uh, another one of my students, who's a level four practitioner, Phil Delaire, was seeing so many injuries from CrossFit in Toronto, Canada, that he actually developed a whole system of training to prepare people for CrossFit and related functional training systems like kettlebell training. And he implemented that in one of the large gyms in Toronto. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, I think CrossFit is really very close to military training in its overall structure, intensity, volume, and I think that I don't have anything. I, I say there's no such thing as a bad exercise, only an incorrectly prescribed exercise. Agreed, and what's yeah. What's been interesting for me is, you know, when I started lecturing and traveling around the world, everybody was stuck doing all this silly isolation bodybuilding training, which isn't even good for bodybuilders because it can be done much better, as Bill, Bill Pearl showed in his book, Keys to the Inner Universe. And if you look back in the days, Frank Zane, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Lou Ferrigno, you rarely ever saw pictures of them doing things that weren't functional lifts, like deadlifts, squats, lunges, and uh, bench press. It was only when they started getting paid to show up at gyms that had machines that you started seeing pictures of them using that kind of equipment. And then they began supplementing. So they might've done, you know, squats and then chased it with some leg press. But, um, I think that, CrossFit really does offer a great conditioning system and a lot of opportunities and a lot of social interaction, and I think it's very good for the young people today because it gives them something that they can really challenge themselves and grow themselves with and learn to use their mind to overcome fatigue and uh, push themselves through uh, what I call impossibility walls or self-perceived limitations as long as we can implement a system of assessment so that people know how to prepare or at least instructors are trained in the basics of postural analysis muscle imbalance analysis and as i because i was a consultant to the pump system before yeah. it ever left new zealand and and they had many of the same problems in the pump system that i later saw in crossfit But the difference is in New Zealand, interestingly, before you could go to a pump class, you had to get what is called your pump license, which meant you had to show up for a training program where an instructor took you through each of the common moves used in pump. And only when you could demonstrate optimal form could you get your pump license, which you had to show to get into any of the large pump classes running in gyms in New Zealand. But when they imported that uh, to the US and other countries, they dropped that part of it, but I wrote Philip Mills, a six-page report of all the changes I suggested so that they could avoid being attacked by experts like me once they took it internationally, some of which they made, some of which they said it disrupted their ability to choreograph effectively, uh, which was their own decision, but at least they actually listened to me and hired me as a consultant to try to make it safer for people. So I think that CrossFit could evolve with the influence of people like yourself, and people like Rossi, e. Thorne, or even myself, if they were interested,
0: yeah, I've got into, some. Sorry, Paul.
2: I was just going to say into a a very very effective but much safer system that actually teaches people a lot more.
0: Yeah, I, th- there's a huge similarity between you know teaching functional movement. There's lots of common ground between uh, you know the functional movement. Uh, the functional movement people in CrossFit. So, you know, I, I think that CrossFit it needs to be admired for the fact that it's a, it's a global brand and the franchising has been fantastic. I was at a yoga conference in Goa uh, called Zabhala and um, there was two Shaolin monks there uh, and I was doing CrossFit with them. Uh, and you know CrossFit has, uh, has succeeded in terms of media when the Shaolin temple is talking about CrossFit. Um, that's
2: quite funny yeah I'll
0: tell you what these Shaolin monks were fantastic at the body weight stuff but you know I beat them in the Olympic lifting so I was happy with that Um, but that's good but and obviously you know um Physical inactivity is one of the. It's the fourth leading cause of of preventable disease. So any system that's encouraging people to move uh, in a functional way needs to be, uh, you know, validated and appreciated. Um, in terms of my, so I do research in CrossFit. I've got my own CrossFit clinic dedicated to only CrossFit athletes. Um, and then I also work at all the major competitions. Uh, I used to work for CrossFit. Obviously, now we've got sanctioned events. Um, I worked at a competition called strength in depth, uh, a couple of months back. So what I've done in, you know, the, in our system, in the bulletproof body system, we've divided, you know, CrossFit into four. So you've got your beginners, uh, and that's anything up to one year. And these guys are vulnerable. Um, and some research by FATO is the four year analysis study saying that, um, the first year of CrossFit is when you're probably the most vulnerable. Then you've got the recreational crossfitter. They've already passed that year and they're adapted to the demands of those tasks. And then as the recreational athlete progresses, they want to do the competition. That's when they increase their load. That's when they're vulnerable again. And then you've got the elite or the established athlete. And these guys are just phenomenal athletes. They're in better shape than any athlete I've ever seen. Uh, And I'm working with... um, Reese Mitchell, who's who's a young teenager here in the UK, uh, we did some some injury work with him last year, and you know he's one to watch for the CrossFit Games. Um, so it was you know be, real pleasure to work with him. So in terms of my research on CrossFit, uh, what I did, uh, you know, it's great research in the literature because um, you know you have to be careful when you're publishing research on CrossFit. Um, so what I did, I, <laughs> yes, I, I took a hundred CrossFit athletes and a, and I basically you know, just listen to them for, uh, I did the functional movement screen on them to see if I could predict injury. And we waited six months and recorded, um, you know, what injuries did they have? And when we're talking injury, we could go deep into that. Is something that prevented them doing CrossFit for a a short amount of time. So we're not talking life-changing injuries, not talking about shoulder dislocation or something that requires surgery. These were little niggles, little inconveniences that actually just got better on their own. And um, mm-hmm. there's a massively, there was a high percentage of shoulders that we saw, unsurprisingly, um, that was disproportional to the the other injuries. So shoulder and back uh, pain were the, the, the two areas that were highlighted. But, you know, they all got better. They all got back to CrossFit. They, these were just low-level niggles. And then in my CrossFit clinic um, that I've been running for five years now, um, actual fact, low back pain is is something that I treat more, and obviously I'm treating a lot of rotator cuff related shoulder pain, and knee p- knee pain is the next one, uh, and then wrist pain, and and we've got a whole system of Bulletproof Bodies to stop that happening because you know we've gathered the data, we know what's going on, uh, and we also search the literature. There's some great studies that saying that you know the injury rates uh, of of CrossFit are you know per thousand hours of training exposure uh, are no higher than going to the gym normally. And that might be. Well, I don't doubt
2: that at all. <laughs>
0: that, and that's because there's some craziness. If you go to a normal, you know, a, a normal gym where there's no instructors there that know what they're doing, people are doing the craziest, most insane stuff. And all the CrossFit gyms, the CrossFit boxes that I've been to on a global scale, there's been a really high standard of coaching. Uh, and the, the people know what they're doing. Um, they've, they're in the industry's policing itself, so it 's got a high level uh, of of technique and a lot of the times is that the the key is when you get to the competitive element can you maintain the form? Have you got the virtuosity to maintain your form you 're not chasing the reps you 're not sacrificing the techniques um, to do what the training wants you to do so there 's a little bit of a paradox about that um, and then i 'll just finish um with the fact that there's some interesting training out there, um, I don't know whether you're familiar with Tim Gabbett's work on um, acute chronic workload ratios and and things like that. You know where no. we can we can spot an injury before it happens because the 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 increase in training load ha- has has gone above the the ability to handle. They've just done too much too quickly. Um, yeah. But they're also looking at this trainery, uh, training injury prevention paradox, um, which is the phenomenon whereby athletes accustomed to high training loads have fewer injuries than athletes at lower workouts. And this model is based on the evidence that non-contact injuries are caused uh, by training per se, uh, but they're more likely the inappropriate training, um, you know, excessive or rapid loads in training, um, and the soft tissue hasn't adapted, particularly if we're looking at athletes above the age of 35, that seems to be when uh, age-wise we, we have a greater risk, particularly with the shoulder and the lower back.
2: Yeah, I have several comments to make in regards to all these points you're making that I think are very, very relevant. One, anytime you're looking at research like you're citing, you have to look very, very carefully at how the research is conducted, what assessments are being done, none of that research I've ever seen integrates the interactions between things like the adrenal glands and the hormonal system and the, vi- and the visceral system. So they're yeah. still treating the musculoskeletal system as a machine, as a mechanical apparatus, which is extremely dangerous. And, and sure, one of the ways I can prove that in one sentence is that all stress in the human body summates physical, emotional, and mental stress is calculated in the nervous system and brain and the musculoskeletal system responds to mental, emotional, dietary, lifestyle, inflammatory, visceral, hormonal stress. And it mirrors that back as motor changes and motor responses, which I could go into with great depth, but it would be too technical for most of our listeners. Sure. So, and the other way is a lot of the evaluations they're doing do not identify uh, things like disintegration of the core and or the tonic and the phasic systems or core and extremities. So I'm always highly suspect. And so far, I have not found one really well-designed research study. So unfortunately, the, with research, you, you're, the, the answers you're getting are based directly on the questions you're asking and how you're asking those questions, i.e. how you're evaluating people. Um, the other thing is they don't effectively normalize the studies. Whenever you're doing research, you have to have a reference point. Uh And so far, I've never seen a single research study in musculoskeletal medicine where they actually had effectively normalized the reference subjects. So to do that, you'd have to have normal infant development function. You'd have to have normal tonic-phasic muscle integration, optimal postural alignment, and, and normal internal homeostasis of internal regulatory systems that affect the musculoskeletal system directly, which is the hormonal system the visceral system, the limbic system, the nervous system, and so on. So what happens is the research can only give you the answers to the questions you're asking and how you're asking the questions. And also, many of the assessment techniques that they're using are not nearly as good as they could be. For example, very few of them assess primal pattern movements. True. Uh, Very few of them assess core function skillfully. Uh, None of them do an assessment of internal systems, such as what's the health of the adrenal glands. And people, as I mentioned earlier, keep overlooking the fact that the human central nervous system summates all stresses, whether they be physical, emotional, or mental, and the motor system responds to any stress, physical, or emotional, mental, uh, without any differentiation. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's easy to, to demonstrate this and I've demonstrated it to my students countless numbers of times. So we have to be super conscious about what are we really, how are we gathering the data? What are the questions we're asking and how are we, um, making correlations between the outcomes and then considering the fact that the human body is a cybernetic system or a system of integrated systems, all of which affect each other. So my, my concerns with all this musculoskeletal research is they're still treating the human uh, musculoskeletal system as it's a system of levers and pulleys like a machine, but it is radically far from that. Yeah. Um, the other issue with regard to motor programming and having studied motor learning quite extensively— What you find is that if you take an athlete and you give them a load that let's say they can do 12 repetitions with, the nervous system actually pays the most attention to the last reps when there's the most stress on the system. And if a person's form begins to break down in the last two reps, the previous 10 reps are completely forgotten about and it will begin to introduce compensatory movement strategies that then become programmed into the system. So what you have is you can take people that have good training and initially start out doing the lifts well, but when they start pushing themselves beyond the threshold of what their motor system can handle and stay integrated, they actually start training compensatory movement patterns into the system. And as I show Czech professionals, when I'm training them from, based on motor learning research, and I consulted a very, very famous, uh, highly educated physical therapist who teaches a master's degree in physical therapy. And he's a a Scandinavian trained therapist named Ola Grimsby. And I brought this issue to him back in the late nineties and showed him what the motor learning research said. And the motor learning research says you, on average, a person learns a new motor program within 300 to 350 repetitions. And then I talked to Ola Grimsby and I said, in your opinion, how long does it take as a therapist to rehabilitate a faulty motor program once it's been induced by pain or poor training technique or any other source of stimuli that alters optimal movement. He said it will take on average 3,500 to 5,000 repetitions of properly done corrective exercise in an environment that is supportive of that kind of learning to correct a faulty program. So the point I'm making is a lot of people can be taught how to lift properly, but if they are pushed to the point at the ends of sets where their form is breaking down and there's impingements happening and tendons getting inflamed, they're actually training in faulty motor programs with high intensity and pain inputs and pain research shows us the most powerful reprogramming agent for the human motor system. And nothing can compete with pain, no therapeutic technique, has a greater influence on reprogramming the system than pain itself. So when you look at that fact and how people are pushing themselves into extremes in sports like CrossFit, Kettlebell, and others, they don't realize that they can destroy all their good training by pushing themselves beyond the point of managing good form. Now, to give you a correlate to that, when I was lecturing in Russia uh, in, in, I don't know, 2000 and six, maybe. I can't remember the exact date. One of my buddies over there uh, uh, was a world record holder in Russian Olympic weightlifting and was on the Russian Olympic weightlifting team for many years. And he is Aleko's representative over there who sponsors my institute. And he invited me to come train with the Russian Olympic weightlifting team. So I actually got to go spend about three hours in the gym with the Russian Olympic team training with them. Awesome. And one of the first one of the first things I noticed, in fact, my buddy Maxim had not squatted in two years, and he warmed up and was doing sets of six with 660 pounds on the bar, with absolutely perfect form. Wow. That it, it he squatted that weight with such perfection, you would have thought it was his warm up. And when I was watching these guys, I was seeing guys doing clean and jerks with with over like 550 pounds, and their last rep was as perfect as their first rep. I did not see a single athlete trained to the point where they were wobbling, shaking, losing form. They knew better. Yep. And so when you look at the science of motor learning and you look at how the research is potentially very misleading, and this is something I just pinned Stuart McGill on the table with because his research and the and the flood of people following that is just dangerous. And I told him, you were publishing a lot of very deceptive research and people are believing it like gospel. And I said to him, do you not understand the integration of the visceral system and the fact that the visceral system regulates the musculoskeletal system and that your sympathetic chain ganglia will specifically alter the flow of bud into any gland or viscera that needs healing because it's inflamed or traumatized in any way at the expense of the musculoskeletal system because if your liver fails or your kidneys fail or your hormonal system collapses, it does not matter one iota what your musculoskeletal system is doing because you're going to die. So the entire autonomic nervous system is wired to protect the visceral system and the glandular system from physical overload by shutting down blood supply to the muscles that are on the same neurological channels as the organs in stress. And that was first published in The Abdominal and Pelvic Brain by Byron Robinson, MD, in 1899, and then reinforced in his second edition of The Abdominal and Pelvic Brain in 1907. And then subsequent research called The Abdominal Brain has backed that up. And any good anatomy book will show you that the... Uh, neurological pathways and the circulatory pathways involved in that. So I think that what I'm really saying here is that if we remember that perfect practice makes perfect and that repetition is the mother of skill, provided there is skill in the repetitions, and it's toward the end of a set when people are pushing themselves that they're likely to go past the threshold of normal motor performance and start inducing microtrauma or impingement syndromes or faulty uh, movement patterns that lead to muscle imbalance syndromes and compression, torsion, and shear on joints and ligament strain, and jack-up nociception, which then triggers a limbic response and a modulatory response from the limbic system, which then runs itself into the body and leads to a very, very powerful programming stimulus that can take thousands as i said of corrective repetitions by a skilled professional that knows how to implement the strategies and do a proper assessment so i think if what i'm saying is if we if if those like you involved in crossfit and such types of functional movement sports would instill the wisdom that training and pushing yourself to the point of breaking your form is really just training poorly and you're Basically, training the motor system to compensate, and that is not the way you develop high-performance conditioning. And my time with some of the best weightlifters in the world, bar none, demonstrated that they'd already learned that and did not break that rule in their own training.
0: Yeah, I'm, you've hit the nail on the head. And the big critique of CrossFit is the fact that you're pushing somebody to their extreme. They're beyond their work capacity, and then they're just chasing the reps or ch- just trying to lift the weight up. And, and that's when you need the sensible coaching coming in so they're either scaling the workout or they're decreasing the weight on the bar or the, the height of the box jump. And that's probably not going on as much as it should do. And obviously working with the Russian weightlifters, you could see that the first rep was as good as the last rep. And that's, that's probably where the CrossFit needs to go. It needs to be a bit stricter in what it's doing. But again, is, we've got this Bobath approach versus the, the functional relearning, motor relearning. Do we just do make sure we're perfect and, and immaculate before we even attend the technique? Or do we just do the technique and tidy it up as we go? And I think the truth will lie somewhere in the middle there. Um, it certainly does in, in the world of physiotherapy. You know, there's a load of Bobath practitioners and there's a load of you know functional relearning. The, the key is... The the movement has to be as good as it possibly can, otherwise you're dealing with this, you know, pain induced compensatory movement. That you know, because their cup is full of this this dysfunctional movement, it's going to take so much longer to empty that. And there, that's where you see the dysfunctional problems of the back, the shoulder, the knee, and and that's you know my bread and butter, and that's what I deal with. And I think you've been absolutely bang on in the fact that um, it is about as perfect training as, as we can get, you know, and the CrossFit coaches are fantastic. Obviously, the check system takes it to the next level. Um, uh, and that's why it's important that I'm integrating the check system into dealing with CrossFit athletes. Uh, and, you know, because you've been dealing with functional movement f- for a long while. Um, yeah. With regard to things like, you know, we get into a little bit of overtraining now, um, because I do see... A lot of people uh, you know banging the drum every day, constantly pushing for a personal best, um, uh, and they don't understand the, the, the way that they have to cycle their training as well as they should do, because the, because the programming, you know they might not be there on a regular basis, they might be sporadic, and then their ego is saying, "I can still lift this weight, I can still do this amount of reps." But in actual fact, they've deconditioned significantly. Um, so I know you do loads of work on, you know, adrenal fatigue with your athletes. Have you got any top tips for CrossFitters out there uh, about adrenal fatigue? Well,
2: well, there's a couple things that you're kind of triggering me to comment on. So I'm going to, uh, give you a few points that will lead to the answer to that one that are based on the things we've discussed so far. One of the things that people don't realize is that the motor system is monitoring sub pain threshold uh, influences all the time. And I've demonstrated this with many athletes. I've worked with many of the world's top distance runners, triathletes, biathletes, and athletes of every sport you can imagine, from X Games competitors to motocross racers to race car drivers to fighter jet pilots, you name it. And one of the things I've demonstrated over and over again is that, for example, I can have an athlete walk in front of me and see, for example, that they're not weighting usually their dominant leg effectively. In other words, they're walking as though they have a subtle limp. And then I can have them walk across force plates that will give me objective feedback to exactly what the difference is between the loading of the right and left leg. And for example, I can then go do an assessment of tendons and muscles And many times what I found, for example, with distance runners, when I grabbed a hold of their Achilles and started scanning it for adhesions and and, uh, trauma, they practically jumped off the table. But prior to me touching it, they go, oh, my God, I had no idea I had anything wrong down there. Mm. Point being is that the nervous system has a threshold that that it has to cross before pain becomes conscious but I've demonstrated and seen over and over again that the motor system is modulating movement at sub-threshold levels of pain because it perceives there's a weakness in the Achilles tendon or the biceps tendon. And it's altering, which is why I teach athletes that you have to learn how to assess your muscles and how to look at your basic tendons. And I teach them how to do that so they can get what's uh, identify what's called a prodromal injury state or they can identify things that are actually under a state of trauma, but it hasn't reached the threshold level that they're consciously aware of it. And sometimes you can find things two or three weeks in advance of them actually manifesting. And having been the therapist for, you know, the Olympic marathon trials for the men and the women and many Olympic athletes, including the Olympic kayak and canoe team and various other organizations, I've been able to demonstrate to the therapist and show them how to identify these things And prove to them that they're already, these athletes are already making movement compensations. And so when you consider somebody like a runner, for example, the average runner has 750 foot strikes per mile per leg. So uh, if you're 10 pounds heavy on your left leg, that's 7,500 pounds of extra work a mile. And If you're waiting until pain comes along to start looking into that thing, then it's a very, very dangerous mistake, which means that the people monitoring these people have to have the skill and uh, ability to recognize these pre-threshold compensatory patterns or you get into trouble. So to to go further into discussing this with you, the answer to your issue about – how do we integrate these things and look at things like the adrenal glands? You made a comment about people chasing after their personal best. Well, having worked with countless of the best athletes in the world and many world record holders from massive numbers of sports, I've always said to them, because a lot of these guys, I have to put on corrective exercise programs. So it's a radical shift from their normal way of training. And they're, you know, immediately grinding their teeth and well, how am I going to maintain my muscle mass? I'm going to get weak, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I simply ask them. What's more important to you, winning your next competition and possibly ruining your career or being able to invest the next three months and establishing yourself and balancing your body and learning the self-management principles that will allow you to continue to improve on your personal best for many, many years to come and have a fruitful career and have the wisdom to know when you need to back down and go into a phase of corrective exercise or restoration work? And so far, not one of them has ever opted for the short uh, win. They've all said, okay, I get it. Let's do this. Um, the, the, The next issue really is exactly why I teach the four doctors, because you cannot effectively condition an athlete that does not have an understanding of how to manage their mind, Dr. Happiness, that doesn't rest effectively, Dr. Quiet, that doesn't know the difference between active rest, passive rest, and total rest, and that doesn't have an understanding of the influence of diet on their hormonal system and the biochemistry of their body. When you look for example at how many people are filling their bodies full of inflammation by eating foolishly. Yeah. And then you add musculoskeletal stress from hard training on top of that. You've got a, just a milieu that's perfect for musculoteno- musculotendinous junction tears, tendon destruction, uh-huh. uh, and, and, you know, uh, accumulation of metabolic waste in the body because the liver's too backed up with all this acidity and a long, long list of things. So ultimately, that's really the gift I tried to give the world with the four-doctor concept. And that's what How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy does, is it gives you a series of questionnaires where any athlete can immediately identify what systems of their body under load, read the book, and know how to implement the changes to bring about homeostasis. And really, you know, Balance is the springboard from which high-level athletic performance uh, emerges. So as I say when I teach athletes and and therapists about core conditioning, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. I love that saying. And if you don't have a knowledge of the integration and the effects of diet and lifestyle factors, remember an athlete's only in the gym one or two hours a day, and there's still – uh, 22 hours a day, you can destroy yourself with much greater efficiency than you can ever compensate for in a gym. So until we start seeing the body as an integrated holistic system, which paradoxically is not a new idea. If you get your hands on the book, Life is Movement, written by Eugene Sandow, do you know who Sandow was? No,
0: if you'd inform me.
2: Well, Eugene Sandow was the strongest man in the world for many, many years and did amazing things. I think you'd find his biography uh, very, very fascinating. But Sandow did wild stuff. Like he used to stand on stage with a 50-pound dumbbell on each hand and do repeated backflips. What? He, yes. I've got pictures of him squatting a huge tree that somebody had sawed flat on the top and it had like 16 or more people on it and it weighed 2600 pounds and he squatted it. He used to go into a, a yoga pose where you go on your hand, on uh, supine and you arch your back. I forgot what it's called, the fish or something yeah, like fish that. Post. And they would yeah, they would put wooden planks on him and drive Model T cars over him while he held held the pose. Unbelievable. He used he used to take the stirrups of a horse. They'd strap the saddle on the horse and he would fold the stirrups up so they were up on top of the saddle, and he'd take one hand and stand up with the fucking horse. <laughs> at incredible at five foot at five foot nine, two hundred and eleven pounds, he could clean and jerk a three hundred and one pound dumbbell with one hand. Wow! Now, now this is in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds. There was no vitamins invented yet. Yeah. True. No one had found out what vitamins were. There was no protein powders. There was no steroid use. This was all with sound training. He got his beginnings as a performer in the circus and then became a strong man. So he was really like an elite gymnast who then took up strength training and set many mind-boggling records that steroid users and the so-called great athletes today would never even come close to reproducing. But the point I'm driving at is if you look at his book published in 1929 called Life is Movement he states very clearly no man can achieve optimal strength until all his glands and organs are healthy. That was 1929.
0: Wow. It shows you that So that's, that, you know,
2: that's, that's where I think we're
0: yeah, at. Yeah, <laughs> things come full circle, don't they? And, uh, you know, the knowledge of, you know, over 100 years ago, you know, we have to relearn. Every, um, every generation has to kind of relearn what the past generations have told us. Uh, and it boils down to the fact is you've got to do the work. There are no shortcuts. There are no biohacks. You've just got to, got to do the work. I, what's your, what are your views on, um, on biohacking, Paul?
2: Well, I just did a podcast not too long ago with Ben Greenfield. Uh, if you take a listen to that, that's what I did. Is I went to him because he's kind of one of the chief biohackers in the world. But we had a very down in the dirt, honest conversation, and, and actually he agreed with me on on pretty much my approach. But I think biohacking is exactly that hacking. Sure. It's in it's it's trying to trick the system. But ninety nine point nine percent of biohacking would be unnecessary. If you went from biohacking to biointegration, and instead of trying to use gadgets and pills and shortcuts, which is like a bunch of teenagers playing with toys and drugs, you actually paid attention to what the human body is and how it works. The other problem is all these gadgets don't teach you anything. I've seen many athletes that have become so reliant on heart rate monitors and various biofeedback devices and calorie counters, but without their device, they haven't got a clue what's going on. So I have a complete. I have a complete system of training athletes on how to have an intimate relationship with their body and how to monitor their hormonal system, their musculoskeletal system, their emotional systems. How to calculate their heart rate, do an average on their morning heart rate, and how to interpret uh, resting heart rate as a uh, indicator of stress and how that broadcasts stress, illness, and breakdown. And I've, you know, took years and years of monitoring athletes and putting all this stuff into a computer and calculating the data to see how it predicted illness and injury. And it was extremely accurate. And and then I started, you know, using that system to teach uh, Czech professionals and others how to do that. But one of the questions that you asked me was, Adrenal fatigue and what are some of the symptoms? Well, here's some of the symptoms that any athlete can recognize. One, it takes longer and longer to warm up as your adrenals go into phase two. Phase one is characterized by high output. So you have a, a kind of a high adrenaline, high cortisol buzz going during which athletes actually feel more energized and perform better, but they don't realize it's a stress response. Yeah. But once you enter phase two, then you're starting to see a reduction in adrenal output at one or more of the four stages that we measure on a 24-hour cortisol rhythm test. And you start to see a dysfunction showing up in the ratio of cortisol to DHEA because that ratio has to be managed very carefully or it indicates that the body's becoming too catabolic and can't repair itself. So extended warmouts, waking up, even after sleeping for eight hours and feeling unrested, um, mood significant mood fluctuations, uh, warm ups feeling heavy, body aches and pains that are not going away, cravings for high energy, quick energy foods such as uh, sweet stuff or pick me up stuff like caffeine. I mean, if you look at CrossFit, it's just chalk a block with Red Bull and Monster and five-hour energy, and the shit that I see going on is no different than you see at kettlebell competitions and people loading up on all sorts of stimulants without realizing that there, there's a scientific way to do that, but the first thing you got to do is make sure that you're starting from a healthy baseline. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're drugging the system to the point that it actually is creating an internal physiological stressor that produces the same kind of an internal response to stress that pain does when you're lifting weights incorrectly. So, you know, any of these sorts of stimulant things can be used if they're used intelligently. But if they actually become a crutch, it's usually an indication that the system is so catabolic. And the other problem is the more of those uh, things you use. Remember the half the half uh, life on caffeine is four to six hundred minutes, depending on your own liver's ability to clear that toxin from the system. Yep. So when you get people drinking espresso in the afternoon or drinking Red Bull when they're doing an evening CrossFit workout, well, you go check their cortisol levels at 2 o'clock in the morning and they still got higher levels of cortisol than they would at 11 o'clock in the morning uh, under normal sort of cortisol rhythm circumstances, which means it's shutting down melatonin production and they're staying in a sympathetic state all night. And they're wondering, now you see why you go to CrossFit gyms and bodybuilding gyms and weightlifting gyms and people coming with gym bags with wraps and straps and creams and powders and potions and painkillers and all this stuff. It's just, it's, uh, you know, we've developed a whole culture that's so very allopathic and thinking all I've got to do is medicate myself with this and I can lift this or push myself through that. But all it does is shorten careers and, and progressively develop Compensation on top of compensation until the body goes into decompensation, which is an injury or a breakdown.
0: So, really, it's it's back to your four-doctor principle. And that's that's why we've begun to apply it in our CrossFit gyms. You know, getting people, the hardest thing is doctor quiet, getting people to check in with themselves emotionally, physically, um, energy-wise about, you know, maybe they've had some stress that day, so on and so forth. And people tend to use. You know, CrossFit as a a de-stressor, which which can be a good thing, but um, you don't want to be dependent on that as your stress relief. Because if you're highly stressed, you're going to keep wanting to push yourself and push yourself. So there's a big education component uh, about spotting these athletes, these you know highly driven or highly stressed people, and getting some good education about about just drinking water and staying off the caffeinated stuff, about just eating organic food and staying off the the sweets and sugars and the protein powders, uh, and then educating them about the virtuosity of their movement that if you can 't lift the weight with good form, you shouldn 't be lifting it um, and then finally, you know what what is their dream? What do they want to do? Do they want to compete or do they just want to be healthy and play with their kids uh, and It goes back to you know all the all the dream and the goal uh and you know the desires of that particular patient um what have you got what advice have you got for for the crossfit crew in terms of in terms of their dream and their goals
2: well that's a great question um and and you know we've got uh we're we're running down to maybe the last 10 or 15 minutes here just because i'm running out of time myself but uh I wanted to just loop back before I address that point because you said something very important. And I'd like to elaborate on it. You said a lot of CrossFitters are using that high energy, high output as a de-stressor. And that's true, but I'd like to sort of highlight what's really going on there. Sure. And so I'll, I'll, I'll use an analogy that I often use for my students. And and I'm, I'm pretty confident you'll understand the analogy. If you are putting a cylinder head on an engine as a mechanic. Yep and your cylinder head bolts have to be wound down to 110 foot-pounds of torque, how much pressure will it take to unlock that bolt? Not much. Well, if you wind it down to 110 foot-pounds of torque, it's going to take at least 111 to unscrew it, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So what you're seeing with CrossFit Is the fact that people have to use that level of intensity to induce a relaxation effect is an exact measure of how wound up they are in their life due to financial stress, relationship stress, and all the stressors of the world, be it information overload, too many demands on their time, challenges with children, challenges with relationships, challenges with food, and feeling pressured from all angles so the paradox of it is is that people don't realize that they're using CrossFit as a psychological homeopathic. So if you look at homeopathy, it bases, it's based on the principle called the law of similars. So if you have a flu coming on, then homeop- homeopathy says if you find a plant that induces flu-like symptoms based on the principles of energy medicine, it will produce the same frequency and they will cancel each other out. So what I've seen with high-stress athletes is that they actually don't realize that what they're doing is going into the gym and producing exactly how much stress it makes to unwind the amount of pressure that they're dealing with on the inside from physical, emotional, and mental sources combined. So if they realize that using fire to treat fire usually leads to a a progressive breakdown, and what happens to a lot of athletes, as I'm sure you know – when they get injured and can't train, they go through a serious identity crisis. Yeah, agreed. They, they don't know who they are anymore. They lose their strength. They lose their power. They feel weak. They feel afraid in the world. A lot of the males think, oh, my God, if someone tries to jump me, I won't even be able to do anything. So they, they become – they go through a spiritual crisis of self, and it can lead to drug use. It can lead to all sorts of uh, challenging behavior and relationships it can lead to an emotional crisis, it leads to low self-esteem, and many athletes' careers can be ended by that exact issue. So by understanding the principle of work in and understanding the principles of mindfulness and learning basic meditation techniques, even if it's dynamic meditation, such as my zone exercises or working ins, as we've talked about, They develop much better strategies. And by learning the symptoms of chronic inflammation, by learning how to read the body and paying attention to how high your vitality is when you wake up and learning things like monitoring resting heart rate and reading the body and paying attention to the fact that the body is the subconscious mind, if you look at a definition of mind, Dr. Daniel Siegel, a famous psychiatrist, gives a beautiful definition of mind, which is mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And the key thing is mind is an embodied, i.e. your mind and your body are interfused like two sides of the same coin. And relational means that the ego self, if it doesn't have an awareness of its relationship to its body, then we start using our bodies like we use machines and we just push them until they break and we think that we can just replace parts, which never works very well. True. So uh, those types of concepts are very, very important. Now, go ahead and, I'm sorry, tell me what your last question was.
0: It's really to do with the, you know, most of the people that do CrossFit, you know, they might want to lose weight or they might want to get fit. And after that, they then see the human potential uh, and that's the great thing about any sort of training is that, uh, once you feel comfortable with that level of training, you can then start pushing yourself and you start getting better. You start seeing results and then you think, well, how far can this go? What are the limits of human function and performance? Um, and you know, I like dealing with those types of people, uh, that want to push themselves to, to, the edge and with careful monitoring and the right people around them, uh, you know, we, we can push the limits, you know, like Roger Bannister getting under four minutes for the mile and all that sort of stuff. Um,
2: well, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah,
0: no, and, and it's really about the, if the, if these people want to push themselves to that level, um, they need the education and the support, uh, and the knowledge and the application of that and and some role models, Uh, in the sports that that do things in a better way rather than, you know, a short-lived career, for example?
2: Well, you know, we have a man on this planet right now who has clearly, objectively demonstrated that meditative practice and breath practice allows you to do the undoable, and that is Wim Hof. Yes,
0: the ice man. This
2: guy is... Yeah, he's broken tons of records and not just for sitting in ice, for marathoning bare feet in the freaking freezing snow and all sorts of stuff. And really, what is he doing? He's doing exactly what Shaolin monks and yogis have been doing for thousands of years. The difference is he's doing it in the public sphere and showing people what it looks like. And none of the techniques that he's using are very technical at all. But what you see is someone who's consciously aware of the power of the mind and uses what I call work in technologies as a foundation for expressions of physiological stressors, be it freezing your ass off in ice or uh, doing extreme physical events. We also have Sri Chimnoy, who is a monk that did many amazing physical things, and you can even see the documentary, uh, it's called 3100 Run and Become, and Street and Chimnoy started a thirty-one hundred mile race that they run, I think, every year in New York City, and the and the documentary shows that. And it's actually a half a mile lap inside the city of New York, and these guys run thirty-one hundred miles consecutively. And it, it, it's you, you basically whoever hits thirty-one hundred miles first is the winner. So how much sleep you take and how long you stop for food is totally up to you. But there's also a great interview with Sanjay, the guy that uh, was Sri Chimnoy's assistant for many years and works with that race and did the documentary on uh, the Mind Pump podcast where they interview him. And it's quite fascinating. But what I'm really saying is, Dale, we're at a time where people like you and I and those that are conscious like us and Czech professionals around the world are right on the precipice of introducing a cultural shift in what it means to be an athlete and taking it from no pain, no gain and push yourself till you break. And then you have the old saying, the older I get, the faster I was. So you get all these broken athletes sitting in bars, 35 years old and 40 years old, telling everyone how strong they used to be because they trained like idiots. Well, we can end up with a whole world full of whim Hofs and I, I'm 57 year old. I'm almost 58 and I can still lift huge stones and weights in the gym and outperform piles of these young athletes that are on professional sports teams. And I'm old enough to be their father. And they all look at me and they're just baffled. And I say, this is what happens when you know how to manage yourself. Nothing I'm doing is rocket science. In fact, it's the freaking opposite of rocket science. It's common sense. So I think, dale that i'm grateful that you're out there because you're obviously smart enough and experienced enough and have seen enough of what happens when it's done poorly to be a great influence to physiotherapists and athletes of all types and certainly you're quite a dose of medicine for the uk so i, I congratulate you
0: well that's that's high praise indeed you know we've got some people coming strong in the uk obviously matt warden warren williams uh, lee brandon uh, and obviously Gavin uh, running Czech Europe. So, yeah, the UK's coming on strong yes. for you, Paul. We're doing okay.
2: I'm impressed, and I really love it. Uh, I, I'm very grateful. You know, Australia and New Zealand were the first countries to really grab a hold of my concepts and take off with them. And and there's uh, I haven't been traveling to New Zealand so much because I did so many courses over there that, that the market kind of just saturated itself. I mean, there's only 3 million people in that country, but they really did grasp my techniques and apply them, and that led to consulting with the PUMP uh, Pump organization, or, or Les Mills is who founded PUMP. But, uh, you know, I've been grateful in my career to see people like the New Zealand military, the Navy, Navy SEALs. And, you know, last time I counted, we had uh, over 40 universities buying courses like scientific core conditioning, scientific back training program design. And I get letters from all over the world, even prison systems where prisoners are uh, taking my courses from the prison library in preparation for getting out of prison to become a, a trainer or even a Czech professional. And uh, mm-hmm. so it, it's, it's been exciting for me. And, and that's the kind of stuff that really keeps me going. And I think that um, if we, look at people like Eugene Sandow and the strong men that used to do amazing things that the drug using athletes today could, would, would be very, very unlikely to ever reproduce or they would have done it already. Um, I think that we can all be inspired by people like Wim Hof and some of these amazing distance runners and uh, people like Sri Chimnoy who did all sorts of amazing feats of strength and monks that can do amazing things that we seldom ever hear about because the news is so full of silliness instead of the real deal that we're on the precipice of a great merger of high technology and a high level of good uh practicality and grounded common sense approaches and using uh an awareness of our own bodies and our own emotions and our own mind and how to work with our thoughts and our feelings and our breathing and postures and rhythmic movement to really accelerate our anabolic cycle and use diet intelligently and hydration intelligently, and even use stimulants intelligently. I feel the same about drugs as I do about exercise. There's no such thing as a bad drug, just a poorly prescribed drug. And, And I think it's all about human beings sort of finding the edge of the performance envelope any way they can, and I'm all for exploration But I think that in order to be an explorer that survives your exploration, you need to be an intelligent explorer. I mean, it's one thing to just uh, jump out of your car and say, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest and end up being an idiot that gets his, freezes his ass off halfway up. And someone that spends several years in training to be a skilled mountaineer and prepares his body and mind for it and makes it to the top. Sure. And I think, I think, you know, we all have to decide, do we want to be, uh, a wannabe or someone that uh, set one record but then ruined their career? Or do we want to make athletic performance a lifestyle and use it to grow ourselves physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually and make it an integrated part of our life for the rest of our life?
0: Yeah, there's so many exciting things coming uh, and a real uh, new level of consciousness. People are ready for the holistic model now. People are listening Uh, human performance is improving uh, and really it's a big thank you for people like yourself that got your message out there literally to the, to the four corners. Uh, And certainly here in the UK, we're hearing your message loud and clear and we'll continue uh, to implement the Czech principles, both at the university and in CrossFit.
2: I really, really appreciate. I'm very blessed that you're implementing this with, uh, you know, physiotherapists and university systems and, and athletes, and I, I feel very grateful that that you found an interest in my work, and that you're wise enough to to see how important it is to apply it. So before we close, if if there's any other questions that you'd like to ask me, I'd be happy to respond. Otherwise, I'd love to know where people can find more information about you, or any offerings you have, or anything you'd like to share.
0: Um, well, just a, just a quick one, Paul. I wanted uh, your comments about. Um, w- Women are going to the into the British infantry for the first time. I know you've you've already had that in the US, um, but yeah. I was just wondering very quickly because I know you've got to go. What are your thoughts about um, you know the kind of the warrior princess role model women going into the infantry and what might be the long term health um, concerns that we might have?
2: Well, interestingly enough, there's a couple of ways to look at that. If you look at the science on the female body. It's predicted by about the year 20, I think 2025 or 2030 that many of the sports that are dominated by men today will be actually dominated by women. And we've already seen that. We've seen it in drag racing. We've seen it in uh, distance swimming events, for example, uh, long distance swims. Um, We've seen women's marathon times getting faster and faster. Women actually have faster reflexes on average than men. They on average have more slow twitch muscle fiber uh, relative to fast twitch than men do, which gives them an edge on endurance sports. Women can handle more pain than men. Research shows if, a, if the average male went through the pain that a woman goes through giving birth, it would kill the average male. They, their systems can't handle that much pain before they just shut off. Um. Women are very, very durable and very adaptable, but if they're not kept healthy, then their hormonal systems become a big problem because their systems are designed to carry two. They're designed for two bodies. So a woman's range of uh, what she can handle before she gets a stress response is typically a fair bit narrower than a male's because the hormonal system is so much more tightly regulated. Um, So... Women actually are often better shots than men too. When I was in the army and we were going through basic training, I'll never forget, we were at the firing range one day and and two busloads of females showed up. And the first thing the drill sergeant said is, all right, listen, you fucking cowboys, you see that busload of chicks over there? you better make damn sure they don't outshoot you. And they're probably going to, and I'll tell you why. And he said, how many of you have experience using pistols or rifles before you joined the military? And probably 65% of the hands of the entire company of 250 men went up. He said, you guys all think you're John fucking Wayne, and you have got to break all these habits. So when I'm teaching you how to use your weapon, you got a bunch of old habits in the way, but probably 99% of those girls you just saw get off those buses over there have never handled a weapon and they're going to learn how to do it right the first time. And lo and behold, the total score for those women at the firing range was noticeably better than our whole company was of of all men. And so because they have uh, better reflexes, they often have very good visual skills and spatial skills because they need those for mothering they actually have the potential in some ways to be better soldiers than men. So I think a lot of the challenge, and there's also now women fighter jet pilots I've read about too, and they're, you know, just like they can, uh, they've also reached high levels of of racing and Formula One and other sports. So women are actually, uh, you know, remember women didn't even get equal access to sports in the United States until about 1979, if I remember when they passed A law called Title IX, which said men, males and females have to have equal access to gym equipment, gym floors, uh, courts, fields. And prior to that, they had, there was no companies making athletic gear specifically for women. So if a girl wanted to play soccer, she had to wear boys' soccer shoes. If she wanted to play hockey, she had to wear boys' hockey skates and equipment. So When you look at the long history of athletics amongst men, it goes all the way back as far as the human race does. But women had been excluded from equal participation in athletics. So what I'm saying is men have actually got many, 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 many more years of mental, emotional, and physical conditioning. But now that women have been given equal access to sports, and it's not such a social taboo with all the Christian silliness and that stopping them from... Participating, we're seeing women are catching up very fast. And then I think it just becomes the same difference. Just like in Russia, they screen children at an early age and do muscle biopsies and tests on them and anthropomorphic tests. And they'll identify who should be trained for hockey, who should be a gymnast, who should be a distance runner. And then they send them off to camps to train them. And then they select the best from the best that way. I think we're at a time now where com- uh, industries like the military will ultimately realize that they have to do uh, much more comprehensive screening of the men and the women and then begin selectively training them in the positions as soldiers that they're naturally suited to because they come with those gifts genetically.
0: Wow. I, this is something I'd love to get into uh, another time, but I know uh, that, was, that was my final question. So thank you for, uh, for summing it so eloquently, Paul.
2: Well, I, I, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, inhibitions to women being on the battlefield. A lot of it has to do with, you know, (laughs) obviously it's hard to control your sex urge when there's a vagina laying on the ground next to you. And and it's the same for them. And so there's no secret to the fact that uh, many children have been conceived in battlefields, whether it be nurses or aid workers or whatever. But, you know, I think that just boils down to you know the realities of males and females wherever they're at that's why they didn't want women in the church and all sorts of stuff like that that's why the church made women evil because they just basically couldn't control their sex urge so they just projected it onto women and turned them into second-class citizens but i think when you look at the actual research uh, for any military wanting to maximize its performance then you have to be smart enough to take advantage of uh (laughs) what you have available (laughs) sure no, and the other, the other thing I'll share real quick is that women have 30% more commissarial fibers connecting the left and right brain hemisphere. So they're capable of actually processing a lot more information per unit of time than a man is. Men are better designed for focusing on a specific, specific objective, like hunting. But sure. women are far better at multitasking, and there are many, many technical positions. I mean, imagine being an aircraft controller with a woman – As a woman having 30% more fibers connecting the two brain hemispheres, you'd be a far better bet for an air traffic controller than any man unless he is (laughs) a man with a woman's brain. So once we start really honoring women for the gifts that they come with and establishing a system that allows us to get the information we need to then offer them the positions in the military that they're most ideally suited to and doing the same for the men, we're always going to be suffering from outdated, old-fashioned ideas with modern technology in our hands, which is dangerous.
0: Yeah, agreed.
2: So, Dale, where can people find more information about you, your work, or your offerings, or anything that you'd like to share, or where people can find you for uh, rehab if they're in England and things like that?
0: Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm in Manchester, England, uh, but Bulletproof Bodies is all over the country. Uh, I've got a free ebook available on our blog site, uh, BulletproofBodies.blogsite.com. Uh, That's on Blogger, uh, and the free ebook is called "Don't Get Cross, Get Fit." Imaginative title. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at BulletproofBodies1 or Dale J Walker uh, on YouTube, uh, Bulletproof Physio. Uh, On Facebook and Twitter, bulletproof physio, physio spelt F I Z Z Y zero, Um, and I'm normally active on all the socials. So hit me up. uh, Love to hear your comments.
2: What a great podcast, Dale! Thanks for sharing, and thanks for provoking me to get deeper into some of these issues than I normally do on a podcast. Although me and Matt Walden, we we have a tendency to get into things, and we've got a a potent. podcast coming up on vegetarianism and the issues of that so hopefully you'll get a chance to hear that when it comes out but I had a great time with you today and I really can't say enough how uh, respectful I am of your work and your awareness and and what you're really doing to bring the consciousness up and the health awareness and performance up in many areas so great work out there
0: thanks Paul I've really enjoyed provoking you
2: <laughs> anytime <laughs>
0: Thank you, my friend.
2: All right, take care.
0: Cheers, Paul.
1: Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dale Walker. You can follow Dale on Instagram at BulletproofBodies1, on Twitter at BulletproofFizz0, and on Facebook at BulletproofBodies. Dale is offering listeners his ebook, Don't Get Cross, Get Fit, as a free download. Visit bulletproofbodies.blogspot.com to get your copy. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at living 4 d Podcast, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4dwithpaulcheck. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Check Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.